Shi'ur is the first Bezrat Hashem of a series on Nach Yomi. We'll try to spend something like 20 to 30 minutes uh, on each parak of the Navi. We'll see how long it takes us. We'll try to be realistic. I don't want to rush important parts of the story, so occasionally we might end in the middle of a, of a, of a chapter and pick up the next day. Um, so it might not be a full uh, chapter each day. I think the essence is to really... Um, be able to get an in-depth sense of uh, of the Navi, the text, and the meaning. So we're going to pace ourselves as realistically as we can. Uh, the um, Today's shiur is, and really the series, has been sponsored by Charlotte Shaverdi uh, for the Hatzlacha of Yeshivat Deva Haskel, which is my online um, platform for uh, sharing Divrei Torah, and I thank her very much for that. And of course, she was very instrumental in all of our uh, learning and our teaching and uh, our shiurim in Great Neck as well. So she continues to be a force uh, and a contributor to the support of Torah in many, many different ways. And also, Dr. Rab Amirian and family in memory of Nahid Esther Bat Malik, Ruach Hashem Tenichen Began Eden. Today is her yard site. So we're going to begin... Uh, in Shmuel Aleph, now just as a note, sort of introductory material, just to be aware, uh, there are certain Sfarim, certain books of the Tanakh that uh, were split up into Aleph and Bet purely by convention, actually. There's no actual, uh, there's no actual Shmuel Aleph uh, and Shmuel Bet. There's really just one Sefer Shmuel, but it was difficult for the, uh, for the publishers to accommodate such a large book. Same with Sefer Melachim, same with Divrei Ayamim. These books were split into Aleph and Bet, a first and a second. So there's Divrei Ayamim Aleph, Divrei Ayamim Bet, there's Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel Bet, there's Melachim Aleph, Melachim Bet. But really these are all uh, single books that were divided, not necessarily at an arbitrary point in the development of the text, meaning it's not necessarily, you could, you can see a reason for the division at that point, but in reality, the books are uh, a, a single unit, a single entity, and we should keep that in mind whenever we're learning that the chapters, as well as the division into Sefer Shmuel Aleph and Sefer Shmuel Bet, for example, uh, is somewhat of a uh, an artificial division and not a division that emerges from the text itself. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, also, in terms of the uh, what is who was the author of Sefer Shmuel? So tradition ascribes the authorship um, to Shmuel and Avi himself, the prophet Shmuel, the prophet Samuel. The Abar Benel points out in his introduction to the Navi that many of these attributions of the Chachamim can't be taken as 100% uh, uh, literal, meaning to say that Shmuel, for example, dies... Uh, in Shmuel Aleph, not that far from the beginning of Shmuel Aleph. So obviously, uh, meaning, if you're looking at the book of Shmuel as a whole, for most of the book of Shmuel, the prophet Shmuel is not around, so he couldn't have literally written the entire book. It must be that Shmuel wrote the parts up to the uh, conclusion of his career, and Natan and Gad, the Nevi'im, that took over after him, uh, and served as uh, teachers and guides to David HaMelech, after the death of Shmuel, they must have completed the book. So says the Abar Banel, and it's really a very convincing uh, interpretation 
uh, of the uh, you know of the authorship of the book. The um, in terms of looking at what the purpose of the book is, when we look at the book as, as a whole, I think that will uh, uh, will will reveal itself as we move through chapter after chapter. But the main point is to um, is that the book basically charts the emergence of the monarchy of Israel uh, in the person of David Melech, basically. Uh, when we look back, and it's hard to remember to when we did Nachiomi almost a year and a half ago, when we look back uh, to the book of, Sh- of Shoftim, which is the book that precedes the book of Shemuel, so we see a decline spiritually, politically, socially, morally, religiously, in every arena, the Jewish people are declining, and in particular, the leadership of the Jewish people, the quality and the caliber of the leadership is declining over time throughout the book of, of Shoftim. When we open the book of Shmuel, it has essentially hit rock bottom. If you recall, the last episodes that are recounted in the book of Shoftim are very tragic episodes, episodes that reveal not only the moral depravity and religious alienation of the Jewish people and their distance from Torah or from anything that that reflects a modicum of Jewish values, uh, as well as a leadership that is broken down completely and, and is fundamentally lacking. So we open the book of Shmuel and we have to kind of keep that backdrop in our minds. That is the setting in which the book of Shmuel takes place in the aftermath of the book of Shoftim, which honestly is not a very inspiring book in the sense that it concludes with the Jewish people at the lowest, at the bottom of the barrel, essentially, in terms of where they sink in the end of the book of Shoftim. And one of the refrains that repeats itself in the book of Shoftim is that this was all happening at a time that there was Ein Melech Yisrael. There was, no, there was no king for Israel, so people just did whatever they wanted. In other words, that's the explanation given in the book of Shoftim, which tradition incidentally also attributes to Shmuel Navi, meaning that Shmuel Navi wrote the book of Shoftim to sort of give a retrospect on what had it happened in the generations preceding his own career to lead to the point where it was really necessary to have a more stable central authority, both politically and religiously for the Jewish people. And that is what happens during the period of Shmuel and eventually the period of David Melech, as we're going to see in as the book unfolds. But that's an introduction. I don't want to spend too much time in theoretical introductions where we can get into the text. So let's take the text. If you have in front of you a Navi, that's great. If you don't, there are so many different apps and different ways of finding it. I could uh, maybe in future Shirim set up a screen share that might be easier for everybody to be able to follow along with the text in front of them on Safari or one of the other websites that provides that. But today I didn't set that up and I don't want to delay the shiur, so I'm going to jump right in. And hopefully everybody either has the text in front of them or can access it on an app or or by looking at another screen um, uh, as they're watching this on the computer, whatever whatever is easiest. Um, so the uh, so we look at the uh, the opening of the text. Now this is a also a very famous. Um, story because it's actually read as the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah. Um, I think many people, most people, probably have at least a smattering of familiarity with the story. There was a certain person who was from Ramataim Tzofim, Mehar Ephraim. So uh, he, he, there, there are a lot of Midrashic interpretations that Ramataim Tzofim really is referring to uh, to something else, but the point is, it's telling you where he's from. Me'ar Ephraim from Mount Ephraim. Ushmo El Kanab Ben Yoacham Ben Eliu Ben Tochu Ben Tzof Ben Tzof Efrati. We don't want to dwell too too much on all the different midrashic allusions that the rabbis find in words like Tzofim here, which also can refer to a prophet sometimes. 
Um, the main point is that it's describing an individual who turns out to be a righteous individual, turns out to be a very good individual, and that's not um, something to be taken for granted in the context of the Book of Shemuel, and particularly in the aftermath of the Book of Shoftim. So it tells us about Veloshte Nashim, he had two wives, Shem Achat Chana. One of them, they, her name was Chana, Shem Hashenit Penina. The second one was named Penina, Lefnina Yeladim, Ulchanayin Yeladim. Penina had children and Chana did not. Now, this is a motif in the Tanakh. This is, this should immediately bring to mind um, another story in Tanakh that we are all familiar with, a story in the Chumash that we are all familiar with, which is of course the story of Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah, where we have the same circumstance of a man with two wives, one of whom is providing children and one of whom is not, is infertile. The, and we're going to see that the similarities don't end there. And from Yamim Yamima means from year to year in Tanakh. From year to year, this man would go to bow down and to sacrifice to Hashem in Shiloh. Shiloh was the location of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, what we would eventually call the temple that would be located in Jerusalem when Jerusalem had the final temple. Um, so that, uh, uh, that was the... Um, that was, there were many other uh, destinations, there were many other places that the Mishkan, that the temple uh, or the temporary, the, the uh, tabernacle was placed during uh, the period between the exodus from Egypt and when eventually Jerusalem was chosen as the final location for the uh, Beit HaMikdash, for the temple that would be an actual permanent structure. So in the... Uh, so so he was going to Shiloh because that's where it was at the time. At this point, we don't know anything about Chofni and Pinchas. We're going to find a lot about them uh, in the upcoming uh, in the upcoming chapter. This chapter doesn't reveal to us too much about Chofni and Pinchas. The important thing to realize about Chofni and Pinchas that we're going to see later is that they were not very great leaders. They weren't leaders really worthy of being Kohanim Lashem, of really being um, priests of God. But at this point, it just says that they were the sons of Eli. Eli was the Kohen Gadol, he was the high priest, and they were the Kohanim serving there. Now, what we're going to find out is there was no small thing for someone to come to, the, to Shiloh at that time for religious worship, because what had happened was the full commercialization of religion in the period of the sons of Eli. And um, it's really going, it's going to be uh, uh, fleshed out uh, in much greater detail in the upcoming chapter. But they would go dutifully, you know, with, with com- commitment and dedication at the times that were prescribed for what's called Aliyah Regil, what's called pilgrimage festi- festivals. They would go to appear to sacrifice to God at that time. And they would face these Kohanim. Vayayom, and it was on that day. Now, we don't know what day that refers to. It doesn't necessarily mean a, that it's referring to a day that we know of. But it means that it happened... Uh, you know, that it was a, uh, that, that on this, uh, the day of the holiday, meaning, again, it's describing something that typically happened. It's not describing a particular day, but it means that on a, on a regular basis this would happen. That, Vayizbach Elkanah, Elkanah would bring the sacrifices of the holiday. And he would give out, of course, meat um, from the festival offerings to all of his kids uh, from Penina. And to Chanai would give a very, very excellent, it sounds like it might mean a double portion or a very honorable portion, a special 
a portion just for Hannah. Of course, she was alone. Because Hannah was his favorite wife and Hashem had closed her womb. Now, there's two important things to note here. The first one is that this makes the similarity between the stories of Rachel and Le'an, the stories of Hanan and Penina, even closer because we remember that in the story of Hannah and Penina, in the story of Rachel and Le'an, we know that there is... Um, that there is a, that the favorite wife, so to speak, the one with whom Yaakov has a stronger and more passionate, you could say, more loving relationship is with Rachel. And Leah, who is the one who's fertile and is providing the children, he has less of a relationship with her. Um, that seems to be the case here as well. But we can just imagine the table of the holidays in the house of Elkanah, surrounded by the children of Pnina, Pnina and her many, many children, sons and daughters. And then you have Hannah sitting there alone with no child by her side, with nobody to take care of, just her, um, you know, by her lonesome. I mean, not that she was literally alone because the family of her sister was right there, but she had no children. So she, there was a sense of isolation and he would try to re- Reassure her by giving her a special portion, showing his love for her. And it says, that her opponent, so to speak, her sister wife, who's called the tzara, called the trouble in Hebrew, her trouble, her her uh, her sister wife would would make her upset in order to bother her. In other words, in order to make her distressed. Now, in other words, Penina would purposely, because Hashem had closed up her womb. Now, there are two ways to read this. In other words, one way to read it is the pshat way, the simple way, which is that Penina resented the fact that despite her fertility and all that she did raising the children of Elkanah, he still favored Hannah. So she was upset about that, and so she had a passive-aggressive kind of a an attitude towards Chana, or a lot of resentment, a lot of anger, aggression, whatever it is, and she showed that, and she would rub in the face of Chana that she was infertile, and that's what the Pasuk means, Ki in other words, she would draw attention to the fact that Chana didn't have any children and wasn't able to be a mother, wasn't able to provide Elkanah with what presumably he wanted from a wife, which was children, and so she would bother her. That's the simple meaning, but the Chazal actually have a more charitable interpretation of, of of Pnina, and say that no, she did it because she wanted to inspire Hannah to do to, to to perfect herself, to improve herself, to pray, so she wouldn't. Because some people they kind of accept their fate; they just sort of become complacent and they say, "Okay, I, I'm not going to have children. It wasn't meant to be. Um, I resign myself to this reality, and I don't try to do anything about it." And and so Pnina, according to the Chazal's reading, is much more of a, a helping. She's trying to help. Hannah by keeping this on the front burner, not allowing Hannah to be distracted from her plight. So maybe Hannah will improve herself. So there's two ways of reading the text. In other words, doesn't mean that Pnina bothered her pointing out that Hashem had closed her womb and that was like in order to to uh, uh, to put her down because Pnina wanted to put her down and wanted to insult her and wanted to uh, put, you know sort of uh, uh, make her feel inferior because Pnina felt threatened by Chana. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is that Pnina no was trying to inspire Chana or, or to some extent to try to enable Chana to reflect on her plight so she could improve herself and maybe have the zechut and the merit of, um, 
of, of receiving children. Now, that seems like a far-fetched reading. It makes Penina into a super uh, tzaddika instead of just an ordinary wife who probably would feel really annoyed that her husband favored the wife that wasn't the one toiling over the many children and taking care of the children. And at the end of the day, you like the other wife better. I mean, what kind of a reward is that? Right? So that's the simple reading. But if we look... A little bit further, we might see where the Chazal, where the rabbis lean in a, uh, you know, towards their interpretation, which is more charitable. It says, Each year when they would go to the house of God, now presumably they did it more than once a year because there are three holidays of the year that you're supposed to make Aliyah Regal. I'm not exactly sure, but it says at least once a year they would go. And in fact, the Chazal talk about how Elkanah was a big tzaddik and he would try to get everybody to go up Ali al And as we're going, I'm going to explain it a little bit, that wasn't such a simple matter because the temple the, or the, the Mishkan was being run by ruffians, basically, by gangsters, basically. The Bnei Eli were very difficult uh, uh, people. They were very um, selfish and very, um, very materialistic people who uh, had turned the entire institution of the Mishkan into a self-enriching, self-aggrandizing place that was, uh, you know, designed only for their own satisfaction. It's like some people have this experience. Unfortunately, they come to synagogue only on the high holidays and everything is money, money, money. Oh, buy this and donate that and this. And I mean, in the, in the Ashkenazi world, it's usually buying tickets for the high holidays and all kinds of appeals. And among us, it's buying honors and it's taking it two hours to buy the honors and what are you going to give? And you have to give for this appeal. And that appeal. So much about money, 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 and you're like, you start to think the synagogue is all about money. Now, it happens to be, you know, we're non-profits, so like, it's not like the money is going in the pockets of the people who are raising it. Here, in the case of Bnei Eli, they're like, look, why are we in this business of being Kohanim? Because we get the meat, we get a free barbecue, we get this, we get that. So they were making it, they were running it almost like a, uh, a, a business, and it was a big turnoff to people. So you really had to be able to see beyond that, to be willing to go and subject yourself to that kind of uh, religious service where you're being shaken down down um, for the equivalent of money, uh, although it was in, in the form of meat, every time you came. So they would come, and it says, each time, despite the fact that Hana was given this beautiful portion at every Yom Tov meal to make her feel better, she would cry so much she wouldn't eat anything. And now we can see, right, so it says that, that Pnina was constantly bothering Hana. What did Elkanah do? Fayom Elkanah Isha, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Chana, lame tivki, velame lo tochili. Why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Velama yera, velame, velame rather, velame yera levavech. Why is your heart, like, disturbed? Halo anu chitov lach, meso abanim. Aren't I better to you? Or am I not? Right? Or shouldn't I be? You know, whatever he meant. Better than 10 sons, meaning we have love, we don't need anything else, we have our romance, we don't need anything else, aren't I good enough for you? He was resigning himself to the fate of Chana, okay, she's not going to have children, so why don't you just focus on the good, we have such a wonderful relationship, why do you have to look for anything else? He was consoling her, that's con- the consolation of distraction. You can see how the rabbis are now noticing this kind of a contrast, that, that Pnina was bothering Chana. She was keeping Hana's barrenness on Hana's mind all the time by bringing it up. And the Chazal say that she would do things like say, Oh, look, I got such and such clothes for my kids for the Yom Tov. 
What did you get for your kids? Oh, sorry, I forgot you don't have any kids. She would do these like passive aggressive things according to the Midrash. She would sort of play on the emotions of Hannah. And again, you can see that as just being mean-spirited and cold-hearted. Or you could see it as, look, her husband is telling her, don't worry about it. Everything is fine. And of course, for him, it is fine. Because he doesn't care. He has plenty of kids from Pnina. And a beautiful Hana, she doesn't have any kids, so fine. He has a love affair with, uh, with his wife. He doesn't, you know, he's in love with her. He's happy with her. He doesn't need the kids from her. So for, it's easy for Elkanah to say, oh, don't worry about it. I'm as good as 10 sons. What do you need sons for? Meanwhile, Pnina is saying, no, I have children and you don't. And perhaps that was meant to inspire Hannah to not be satisfied with her lot, to not listen to Elkanah because Elkanah is taking her mind off of it and Pnina is keeping her mind on it. So in the end, you could argue that neither of them is doing the most helpful thing because maybe Pnina is doing it in a way that's mean. Pnina is doing it in a way that's harsh. Pnina is... Whether she intended for the good or she intended because she was, uh, you know, she was, had feelings of resentment, only God knows. That's something that the Chazal are giving her a charitable reading. Let's take their reading. Either way, maybe it's not the nicest way to approach it by making passive aggressive comments and pointing out in indirect oblique ways, you know, the, the challenges of your, uh, uh, your co-wife. But, uh, but Elkanah is also not helping because just by distracting a person from their troubles, it doesn't uh, solve their problem. It doesn't address that they are uh, dissatisfied or that maybe there's something here that they could change. And we'll notice that it says, Vashem sagar That's a very important phrase because what does it mean Hashem closed her womb? That doesn't just mean she didn't have kids yet. That means there's a deliberate divine intervention of her not having kids. According to nature, she would have had kids. Just like it says by Sarah Imenu and by Ochel that Hashem, Hashem didn't give them children for a reason. The reason was, in the case of, let's say, Sarah Imenu, was that they should reach a level where they were, were prepared to, to raise a child with the proper understanding that they had reached a certain level in their development that they were ready to pass this on to the next generation. It was important that they pray for it and that they wait for it and that it happened the way that it did. If they had just naturally had children, they wouldn't have had the same um, uh, perspective on parenting that they did as a result of having to wait and having to pray over it. And the same with Rachel. All of the cases where it says, Hashem Sagar Achma, that Hashem didn't give children uh, to a person, and particularly here because it says he actually closed her womb. In other words, it's not just that Hashem, like in the case of Sarah, you could say maybe naturally she wasn't going to have children and Hashem intervened and gave her children. It could be. You could say in the case of Rachel also that naturally she was infertile in the end. It says he remembered her and he gave her, right? But where it says, uh, because there it says, Rachel Akara, she was barren, right? It says, it also says about Sarah that she didn't have, she was barren, she wasn't fertile. So it could be that it was a divine intervention that she had children. But over here it says, Vashem Sagar that Hashem closed her womb, which means Hashem particular, specifically didn't want her to have children yet. He was closing her womb. Naturally, she could have been very fertile, but he didn't allow it. Now, what does that mean? That means that Hashem is creating a circumstance where the person is supposed to make some breakthrough or have some realization, go through some transformation before they're going to have the child. That's what it's telling us. So what happened here? One day, One day it happened that Chana finally had enough. And after she ate and drank, okay, so she went, um, you know, after the meal, so uh, she went and, um, 
And she and Elia Cohen Yosef al Kisel Mizuzate Chalashem. Elia Cohen, who was the Cohen uh, Gadol, was sitting there by the door of the Hechal. Which exactly which part of the sanctuary she went into is not exactly clear, but doesn't matter so much. Vihimarat Nafesh. She was bitter of soul. And she cried to Hashem and and, and uh, as she was praying. Now the interesting thing here is. Um, that what we're going to notice about Tfilat Chana that makes it so odd is um, if you note, not that, not that she cried, not that she was bitter, but let's take a look at what she prays for. But, and keep in mind what she wanted and now look at what she prays for. Hashem, God of hosts, if you see the deprivation of your your maidservant. And you remember me. And you don't forget your maidservant. And you give. Zera anashim means righteous, Rashi says. Tzadikim. Zera tzadikim. You give righteous children to me. Untativ l'ashem kol I will give him to God all the days of his life. I will never cut his hair. So meanwhile, uh, the uh, Eli is watching her. And Eli, because he sees this woman muttering to herself and crying, he thinks she's drunk, okay? That's, that itself is very noteworthy. But let's backtrack to us for, for one moment. What did Chana want? What was she crying about all these years? What was preventing her from eating at the meal? She didn't want to eat. So after the meal, she runs to the Mishkan to pray. Um, seemingly, she wasn't even the one who ate. She was, uh, you know, she was, uh, it meant to say that after the meal was over, she uh, she left. What was making her so depressed was that she didn't have any children while Penina had all these children. That she was infertile. That she was denied the privilege of having children. And then she goes and prays. And what does she pray for? And seemingly, by the way, this is the first time she's ever done this. Finally gotten up and gone and prayed. And what does she pray for? And what does she promise? She promises to give the child away. Now, why does a person want a child? To have the child. Nobody says, please give me a child so I can give the child up for adoption. Okay, there are some people who offer to be surrogate mothers or maybe they do that for somebody. But if you're praying all these years because you're sitting around the Yom Tov table and everyone around and the, and the children of Pnina are surrounding the Yom Tov table and they're, you know, playing and horsing around and laughing and whatever they're doing around the table on the holiday and you're alone there without the child, that's not going to change because now you're going to give this child anyway to the Mishkan. You're giving the child away to God, which means that basically she's going to take him to be raised by the Kohanim in the Mishkan and trained to be a servant of God. And eventually, of course, he becomes a prophet. And he is a Levi. He's not, an, he's not a Kohen, but he's a Levi. But at the end of the day, how does it solve her problem? It doesn't solve her problem, what she's, what she's doing. So what happened in this tefillah is really remarkable. And meanwhile, the fact that Eli thinks she's drunk and says, How long are you going to be drunk? Get your wine off of you. Now you could. Now there's a midrash that says that he saw in the rim v'tumim the word kshera. He thought it meant shikora. There's a famous midrash like that. It doesn't even matter. The point is that what does it show you that Eli didn't know what it looks for a person to be praying? <laughs> he never saw a person. Now you go to the kotel any day of the week. You see people Jewish, non-Jewish, Spanish, Chinese. 
African, but people from all over the world, they come and they might not be, they could be from any place in the world and they're crying and, and, and weeping and praying to God because it's a, they're, because they have something in their heart that they, you know, or that something is troubling them or they're calling out to God from their distress. Whatever the reason is, you see it all the time. Eli has never seen a person crying and praying to God that he thinks that somebody who comes and cries and prays to God, they must be drunk. That shows you something about the level to which the Jewish people have sunk at this time. Nobody's coming to pray. They come to bring the korbanot. To them, it's a transactional thing. You give the korban, the coin takes the meat. He, he pulls it out of your hand. We're going to see in the next upcoming chapter how bad it was, right? And, and that's it. You did your obligation. There was no heart in it. There was no soul in it. There was no inspiration in the religion. It had become a mechanical kind of religious performance in the times of Eli, because look at the leaders, as we're going to see, the leaders were so bad, what else could it be? So the idea of somebody offering a heartfelt prayer was like, well, she must be drunk. What else would somebody be doing mumbling and murmuring in the, in the Beth HaMikdash? And of course she answers and says, no. Uh, she answers him and says, no, I haven't drunk any wine. I'm just a woman who's going through a hard time. And I poured out my soul before Hashem. Don't think that I'm some kind of a bad person. And by the way, Bat Bilia'al is exactly, it's going to call the Bnei Eli Bnei Bilia'al. Right? So she's saying, don't think I'm some kind of a person who is a corrupt person, a wayward person. I'm speaking only out of my own uh, you know, emotion and my own frustration. Now, it could be that she meant in the way that she was speaking to him because she responded to him maybe very aggressively. Or she means that the fact that I seemed very emotional in my prayer was just because I'm very caught up in my, uh, you know, in what, what I'm going through. Either way, she's excusing herself. And Vayan Eli Vayomer Lechi Shalom. He says to her, Shalom, go in peace. the God of Israel give you what you've asked. She went home and she was happy and she was, she didn't have the sadness anymore. And then it actually happens that they go, they get up in the morning, they do one last visit at the Beit HaMikdash to bow to God and they go back to their home. They have relations together and she becomes pregnant. But the main question remains, what did Tfilah, what did the Tfilah of Chana solve? It didn't solve her problem. What happened? She wanted to have a child, not to give a child up for adoption. So why did her whole focus, her whole uh, goal in the story change? And I think this is the reason why Tfilat Chana, or really, and, and this is the Tfilat Chana that the rabbis are talking about, not the Tfilat Chana at the end that we're going to learn about too. The, the Thanksgiving prayer of, of Chana, where it says, Batit Palil Chana. Not talking about that. Talking about the prayer that she makes when she makes her promise to God and she vows to God to give, give her child over who ends up being Shmuel. That prayer, the rabbis say, is the paradigm of what a prayer should be. But it's odd because it's a prayer where what she asks for seems to be nothing like what she originally wanted. But that itself is the whole point. In other words, real prayer is not just demanding from God what you want, but a lot of times it means changing what you want. It means changing your perspective and changing what you want. 
and the frustration of not being able to have a child that Hashem closed up her womb forced her to change her perspective and to change what she wanted. And this is the novelty in the story of Chana. What did she realize? What was her breakthrough? What was Chana's epiphany that she had? She realized, what does the Torah say about a person, about a time where the Jewish people are fulfilling the will of God? There won't be any barren women. There won't be any... The blessing of God is going to be so manifest among the Jewish people that everybody will be able to have children. There won't be anyone who is infertile among the Jewish people when they're following the way of God. So what does it mean that I am infertile? It means that we as the Jewish people are failing in our responsibility and we're derelict in our duty towards God and that's the reason why there could be a case like mine. In other words, what did she do that was such a big revolution? She, instead of looking just at her own problem, she said, my problem is a symptom of a much deeper, much more pervasive, much more fundamental problem, which is that the Jewish people have lost their way. The Jewish people have disconnected from God. The Jewish people have the Elia Kohen and Chofni and Pinchas, leaders who are fall, have fallen far short of what leaders need to be. They're not educating the Jewish people. They're not inspiring them. They're not bringing them closer to God. They're making it into a business for their own, for their own selves. So what is it for their own material benefit? What does that mean? She saw that her being infertile was a result of the klala, basically, of the curse, of the withdrawal of blessing from the Jewish people that was itself a result of the Jewish people pulling away from God. And that was traced all the way back to the top of the leadership that they had. So what did she say? She said, I'm not going to look just at my own situation, that I'm infertile, that I'm not, that I want a child, that I'm feeling unfulfilled. I'm going to look at that as a symptom of a deeper problem. And I'm going to ask God to make me the vehicle of actually solving the problem. What is solving the problem? Producing a leader who can actually guide the Jewish people in the proper way. And that's why she said that she swore to God, I'm going to give this child to Hashem. Means I'm not going to cut his hair, meaning it's not going to be about his, you know, a child. you want your child to be so cute, you want them to be so adorable, you want them to be, you know, to look a certain way, you take the pictures, you you know, whatever it is. It's not going to be for my enjoyment. He's going to be dedicated like a Nazir who doesn't cut his hair, purely to God, without any self-interest. The opposite of Chofni and Pinchas, the opposite of the current regime, that's what it's going to be when, when I want a child like that. And if you give me a child, I will give him to be trained, to be taught, so that he will become that kind of a leader and he will, be, and he will rise up, hopefully, to correct the underlying problem, which is the disconnect between the Jewish people and Hashem that is causing me to be infertile. In other words, it's like a person who, let's say, faces a discrimination Let's say they face anti-Semitic discrimination in their work or they face a racial discrimination or something like that. So one person just says, this is a problem and I need to fight it. I'm going to argue. I'm going to fight for myself. I'm going to sue. I'm going to do that. Another person says, this is not just about me. This is a, fu- this is a pervasive problem. There's anti-Semitism and discrimination against a lot of people. I'm just one victim of it, but there's a much bigger picture. What can I do to change our society so that anti-Semitism... You know, as a as a uh, as a malady, as a sickness, is uh, cured. What can I do to correct uh, racial discrimination? What can I do? In other words, it's one thing to just care about your individual 
suffering, your individual, the impact that a certain uh, uh, problem in society has on you in, in, in particular, in your own life. It's another thing to say, this just highlights something deeper. You know, and great leaders basically are the ones that say, I'm not going to be satisfied just solving my own problem. I want to solve the underlying problem that my problem is a symptom of. And many times what the establishment tries to do is bribe that individual by, you know, settling with them out of court or doing whatever they can do to enrich that individual and figure once their personal problem is solved, they won't be upset about this anymore and they'll let it go. But people who really believe in their cause, they fight for it even when their own personal problem is solved. What Chana is saying is, my personal problem is just what brought me to an awareness of the underlying problem, of the bigger problem of the Jewish people, and I want to be an instrument of the solution. Now, now that you think about it, right, once you, and that's why she was crying, by the way, because crying means there's really a transformation taking place. Crying means you're going against your natural instinct. Your natural instinct is to think about yourself and she's pushing herself to think about something bigger. She's pushing herself to go beyond that and to make a commitment that demands her demands from her a great sacrifice to think way beyond herself. Okay, that is real tefillah. Real tefillah is when we transform not just it's not just about addressing our uh, our needs or, or presenting our needs to God. It's about sometimes changing what our desires and our interests and our objectives are in light of reflecting on God's plan. It changes what we want. It changes who we are. And if, if you look back now at the story, imagine that Hannah had never had the condition of Hashem Sagawachma, that Hashem sealed up her womb and prevented her from having children. Imagine if she hadn't been barren. Imagine if she hadn't found herself in a situation with Pnina across the table, putting her through all that torment. What would have happened? Imagine if she had listened to Elkanah and just said, you know what, it's not worth it. I should just be happy with what I have. We never would have had a Shmuel. We never would have had a Shaul. We never would have had David Melech. In other words, all of history would have been changed. So what Hashem did was He created this mitzukah, basically, this crisis in the life of Hannah because she was a great person who in response to the crisis wouldn't just buckle under it, wouldn't just distract herself from it, wouldn't just be complacent, but would actually seek to un- to identify the underlying cause, the divine cause, the big picture cause of her suffering and attempt to uh, really uh, become a part of the solution to that problem rather than focusing on her own. But it was only through her own suffering that she became aware of the difficulty and the problem to begin with. And as we're going to see, the the level of the corruption of, of the uh, regime, the, the religious leadership at that time was so deep that you could see Hannah was absolutely right. The problem of the Jewish people was that they did not have proper Torah leadership, proper uh, relationship with God, it was completely distorted. And Shmuel is the one who ends up restoring that relationship, putting the Jewish people back on track, and eventually leading to the creation of the monarchy of Malchut Beit David, which is meant to stabilize that relationship for the longer term. And the Beit HaMikdash, of course, which is meant to stabilize that relationship. It doesn't always work, but that's the idea behind it. So I, I wanted to stop at this point because I think this is really a turning point in the story. What happens when she brings Shmuel up to the um, uh, to the Mishkan and presents him and then Tfilat Chana Bezad Hashem will do tomorrow. I didn't want to rush through it. I wanted this idea to be like, to sink in because I think it's so critical to understand what really Chana's 
change was, why it seems so counterintuitive to us, but if you really understand it, it makes the perfect sense. It fits perfectly with Ju- the Jewish concept of why, uh, you know, why she would be suffering in that, in that circumstance and what the correct solution, what the correct response is to suffering, not just butting heads with it or ignoring it, but seeing what the underlying causes are and adapting to it, changing our perspective and sometimes changing what we need or what we want or what we seek um, as a result of it. So Bezat Hashem, we will continue um, and hopefully finish off the first parak of Sefer Shmuel tomorrow. Thank you everyone for being here. And I'm going to upload and distribute the, um, the recording because the Facebook Live didn't work. It kept, uh, the video kept ending. So I have to figure out how to make it uh, stay live throughout the shoe. We'll have to figure that out. But everyone have a great day.